This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Today, another in the Life and Time series that you enjoyed during the pandemic. I guess there wasn't much on, but we like making them and learning about our panellists. This episode is all about Nicky Bandini, so expect to hear about mid-90s Arsenal, football Italia and living in the US. As most of you know, Nicky came out publicly as transgender about four years ago. We will, of course, discuss that, but this is about her love of football and the journey in the game that has led her to be sitting on a Zoom call with me and Barry right now. This is The Guardian Football Weekly. Barry, hello. Hello. Hi, Nikki. How are you? I'm all right. Yeah. I'm a bit nervous. It's weird talking are to you? yourself. Yeah. Like, I, you know, like it's it's so silly, but like as a journalist, like you spend all your time talking about other people and like when the lens is turned on you, it's it's a bit different. Yeah. I, I didn't want to, in the intro, it made it sound like all your career had been leading to the moment where you were on a Zoom call with me and Barry. It has, obviously. Yeah, of course, yeah. a career highlight. Um, lots of people got in touch. DB says, no questions. Looking forward to this one. I listen to every Football Weekly, but I hit download with greater urgency when Nikki is on. I really enjoy the way she thinks about football. So I agree with that, actually. I don't want to sound surprised. But... And I also like how all the panellists think about football, as I cover myself. Uh, a storyteller opening the door to new and imaginative ways of loving the game. So no pressure, uh, Nikki. Uh, let's start with an, an easy one there. Um, I feel like I sort of should know these things about panellists, but I don't. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Uh, so I was born in London, grew up in London. Um, my dad is Italian. He grew up in Italy and moved to Italy when he was in his 20s, met my mum, and uh, they stayed in London. So yeah, I, um, I I was born and grew up in London. Whereabouts? All over, really. I mean, sort of West-ish mostly, but like we um, we moved seven times, I think, between me being born and, and me going to university. So like we moved a lot. Um, I, I was born in North London, but yeah, we, we really bounced around. Um, and your earliest memories of football? Yeah, I think it's it's a bit hard, isn't it? Because I, I don't know if other people have like more clearly like boxed memories than, than I do. I think like when I sort of go to like a certain bit of youth, it's all a bit blurry. But I'm pretty sure my first memory of football is is really like the 1990 World Cup. Um, because that's the first time when I remember like really paying attention to it. And I again, like this is this is still pretty young, so I don't remember it very clearly, but I remember the sort of thing of everyone being around the telly together and watching this big sporting event. And I really remember the third, fourth game, almost more than the games before. I remember the games before it like a little bit. And I sort of always wonder with memories like that, how much do I remember it and how much have I just rewatched it as an adult and sort of superimposed those things. But I, I really remember the third, fourth game because there was this big discussion in the household about whether we were going to support England or Italy yeah. because I've got an older brother and I've got an Italian dad and I've got an English mum. And so like you had to like, pick a side I and mean, i'm sure you you didn't but it felt like you definitely did as a kid um and uh and i picked italy and i don't have like a really like logical because i was six uh well six or when was, when was the um the fourth game my, my birth's in the summer six or seven years old i, I just re- realized i just completely like literally given people my exact age there which is not a thing i'd intended <laughs> to do well. there you go um yeah i um i I chose Italy and I, I felt like it was because of like a few characters. Like I know everyone was crazy for Scalacci. My dad was crazy for Scalacci. I really loved Walter Senga. And I remember having been sort of quite affronted because people got quite angry about him after they went out. Um, but I, I liked him because he was very, 
I think as a kid, I was very drawn to quite like extroverted people, like people who stood out. And like Zenga had that thing of like on the pitch, like you, you noticed him, like obviously like goalkeepers, you notice more anyway, because they're different. Like they're the ones who are different to everyone else. But he also had a way of doing it that was very sort of on the front foot, you know, making himself visible, coming out more than he probably should have done sometimes. And 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 that I was drawn to. Um, and I think probably on top of that, there was like another part of it, which is just like, my older brother was sort of by character a bit more sort of quiet than I was. And in our household, somehow this got sort of told as a story of, well, it's English to be reserved and quiet and it's Italian to be outspoken and loud. So, so he chose England, did he? I mean, I he did. Right. Yeah. I think he's, I think he's, I think he's switched over the years. Cause I mean, we, we watched the 2006 final together and, and he was unambiguous in enjoying that. And, and honestly, like when I've talked to him more recently about it, I think he, I think he finds it easier to support in Italy than England as well. So did you? So you sort of chose Italy then, and then it grew. Then your sort of love of Italian football sort of grows from there. Possibly? I honestly think I, it is probably still like another few years before I'm really properly engaged in football. I think it's really interesting, like how we come to like these these sort of things that become huge parts of our lives. Because even though the, the World Cup was a big deal, and it was in Italy. My dad wasn't really a football fan. My dad was really the only sort of, well, no, his brother isn't that much of a football fan either. But a lot of the Italian family are football fans and, and he wasn't. My dad liked tennis. But what he really liked, my dad, was being Italian, as ridiculous as that sounds. Like, he, right. you know, like there was no. a World Cup in Italy. So he was incredibly proud of the fact there was a World Cup in Italy and we could all talk about Italy and and how great it is. And um, and uh, he uh, he you know, getting behind the Italian national team was, was a big thing. But once it was over, he was, again, not fussed about football. So I didn't really pay attention to it again for a while. And, um, you know, this is sort of one of the things where, like, it's hard to talk about this in a way that isn't a bit odd because I am trans. But, like, I went to an all-boys school and I think yeah. that for me coming to football again, like, in a more sort of concerted way, was partly just because I went to school and like everyone liked football. Like I wasn't that fussed about football when I first went to that school at, at, at eight years old. Like I know I had like other things I was interested in before the age of eight. And like, you know, in the breaks, everyone played football and it was like, okay, and I wasn't very good at it, but like I joined in. And like, I think a lot of it for me, like grows from there. Like, you know, you, you play football because the other people who you're sort of um, stuck with for most of the day, that's what they want to do. Most people in the UK of a certain age got into Italian football because of James Richardson and his shows on Channel 4 every Saturday and Sunday. Mm. I remember it was quite the ritual in my house. Anyway, my dad and I would, would watch the Saturday morning Gazetta and it was always you know tremendous fun. And it was a, an insight into this world that we didn't know anything about. Um, and actually, just you talking about Walter Zenga, uh, my, my abiding memory of Walter Zenga's hair, jewelry he always has a, a chain flapping around outside his shirt which you know back in the days when footballers were still allowed to wear jewelry and he seemed to chew gum like nobody's business more than sam allardyce more than Alex. but i guess nikki that you were probably a bit too young to watch jimbo's show at the time were you i i definitely like watched it a bit like i probably not the very first episodes of it but i was definitely watching um I was definitely watching some football Italia back then. Again, it was sort of a thing that you could do with dad that was like a thing that he sort of, even though he didn't care about the football, like he was just sort of happy to like point to places and like talk about like, oh, you know, Italy, basically. Um, I don't think it was, um, 
yeah, I, I don't know what year Jimbo started with that, but no, I, we definitely had that on and that was definitely a thing I watched sometimes growing up. I don't know if it was ever like such a fixed ritual and probably more, you know, what then becomes the sort of regular football watching at a certain point is Arsenal, um, which was really, again, like slightly me being a follower because my brother started sporting Arsenal and, uh, and, and I copied him. <laughs> Just before we go on to Arsenal, did because your dad loved being Italian so much, like, did he, mm-hmm. like, was your house quite Italian? Like, I have this, I have this cliched image of, you know, you know, Nonna's secret recipe, huge <laughs> plates of meatballs and all that kind of stuff. I think there was some, like, real contradictions with my dad, because, like, he was hugely proud of, of being Italian and wanted to talk about it a lot. But also, like, it was really important to him that my brother and I spoke, like, properly like and you know I I'm aware that I have quite like a a BBC RP sort of way of talking and like I do think that was like a really important thing to my my dad because I think he felt sometimes he was um discriminated against Mm -hmm. back in in you know his first time when he came to England especially probably before you know I was around like I think when he was first there in the 20s I think being a sort of um an Italian immigrant was was a thing for a while that got you sort of a certain look down on in in London and so there was that going on um but I mean no there was lots of sort of you know we had um big boxes of VHSs of Italian comedians and like things like that I don't know what make it like an Italian household my mum was English and did all the cooking but she definitely cooked like Italian food like she definitely had like learned the things that my dad wanted to eat and and cooked that um so I don't know it was it was definitely Italian in some ways I mean like there's some things that like are stupid that I think um, are not like particularly profound, but you then realise that adults like isn't like something that's happening in most kids' households, which is my dad would come home from work every day and eat bread with olive oil. Like he'd, he'd have like always like, not every day, but like a lot of the time it would be like so, sort of vaguely fresh bread and yeah. he'd have olive oil with it. And it's stupid, right? That's not a big deal. But like, yeah, most most English kids' parents weren't doing no. that. So like there were, there were things for sure. Well, was he putting the balsamic vinegar in? No, 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 oh, just right. salt and pepper. The balsamic thing, when like, it became a trend in England, like years later, I was like, what's this balsamic nonsense? <laughs> oh, yeah. But Italy's so like that. Like there's like really like rules are very strict in Italy, but they're often like completely about like wherever specifically you grow up. So like one place will say that's absolutely the way to do it. And another place will be like, you shouldn't do that at all. You tweeted about Junior Gunner's bus trips when we <laughs> canvassed for questions. Tell us about Junior Gunner's bus trips. At some point, as I say, my, my brother, I think, started having an interest in Arsenal before I did, really. Um, you know, I, I have um, very vague memories of of of, of things like um, the, the the winner Anfield. And I, I think that's not even necessarily a memory. It's something that's sort of got superimposed afterwards. I don't know, like stuff like that. Um, but um, at a certain point, we did sort of start going to some games and we went to Arsenal games. My dad would take us. My dad, again, wasn't even that interested. He was, you know, it was good like that. My dad, I have to say, like he wasn't interested in football. There were other places he'd rather be, but he took us. Um, And at some point um, we did some away trips as well, which was a thing. I I don't even know if it's a thing now because as like an adult, you're so much more aware of like how much harder this must be to organise in terms of like having like adults who are background checked approved and all these things. But yeah, like, the junior gunners used to basically just run away trips where you'd go to you'd go to Highbury and you'd get on the bus and there'd be a few adults and a bus for the kids and they'd take you to an away game and they'd drop you off back there at the end of the day. And when I look back on it, like it just seems a bit mad because you'd have 
I don't know what it was, like 30 or 40 kids from probably, I would guess, maybe like ages of like eight to, to, to some mid-teenage years. And where you got sort of put in stadiums really varied. Like sometimes you'd be in with the away fans and sometimes you'd be in the, the family enclosure. And like, I remember going to Old Trafford and we lost and we were just surrounded by United fans. And like, they weren't being nice to us because we were kids. Like, they were... They were like, you know, in our faces, celebrating, all the rest of it. Like, I remember that. I remember going to a Middlesbrough game where we won. And then like on the bus. That's a journey as well. Coach to Middlesbrough. I mean, again, as an adult, you have a different perspective, right? Like probably for our parents, it was like, great, they're gone for a day. Of course, (laughs) yeah. Out of the way of the whole weekend day. Um, But yeah, I remember like being on on the bus back from Middlesbrough and like one kid started I think we won three two like was doing the gesture of the score line out the window a car on the way back and then suddenly you had all these Middlesbrough fans like leaning out the windows swearing at us like doing wanker gestures like (laughs) it was a really weird thing when I look back on it but it was it was fun like you know as a kid like all of that stuff seems like very like silly but the United game in particular I do remember thinking like this is a bit uncomfortable like there's some very aggressive people around and like we're children or like early teenagers The junior used bus was slightly different. I mean, I, I seem to remember, my, I never went to one without my dad. But going to Watford away and just somebody, a kid behind me eating too many flying saucers and just hurling up like the sugariest, sweetest vomits on a coach to Watford. I remember like one of the bus trips, like because my mum would give us like, I don't know, pack lunch or whatever. And like one time she'd given us these pepperamis, but they were like turkey pepperamis. And I remember opening it. Like the second you opened it, you're like, this stinks. Yeah, like, this yeah. bus full of people. And you're like, oh God, I'm that kid. Who were, who were your heroes then? Footballing heroes? Yeah. Again, like I think Arsenal players, like it, it fits in the same mould as the Zenga thing to some extent. Because it's like the ones who are most expressive and most colourful were the ones I, I love the most. So like I I remember being a really big fan of Paul Merson. And of course, Ian Wright. Like Ian Wright was absolutely hero number one because he scored all the goals and he was um such like a brilliant character and like I I think yeah like Ian Wright was really one of those people who like I remember at the time like I would get like personally upset when people were critical of him and I remember like even after like when he was sort of making his first sort of moves into doing TV stuff and there was like some people who were being hostile to him and like I would take it really personally about Ian Wright because he just to me was just this totally like a pure joyful character and of course nobody's totally pure and joyful but it has been really so lovely seeing him develop into like a broadcaster who I still absolutely adore and who is um yeah I think one of the one of the best out there frankly yeah and a, and a national treasure isn't he like no nobody can dislike him right I hated him right why I hated him yeah I don't know I thought he had I don't know, a cockiness and a swagger and a a nasty streak that I think I'd admire now in players, but for some reason I I just didn't particularly like Arsenal and he seemed to embody (laughs) everything I didn't like about Arsenal. And now I I couldn't love Ian Wright more, but uh, it's weird, weird just how our our opinions completely differ. (laughs) Yeah, sort of fast forward and to, to sort of when you decided to, work in football i mean i don't know if i've sort of missed a huge chunk of you know from being a kid to being to thinking about what you're going to do with yeah. <laughs> with your life when was the moment when you thought oh, this could be a profession for me yeah i i do sometimes think like there's a certain amount of it was like falling in by accident which is crazy when you think about how competitive an industry it is and and how hard it is to do 
um, when I was at university, I had one sort of like, again, it wasn't even as direct as like this is a step along the path, but like a thing that happened was um, I went to Warwick University and I was there right as they were launching. Um, well, it wasn't the launch, it was like the second year or something of of the student university TV channel, which back then was, you know, calling it a channel was a stretch. I don't know what they do now, but back then it was basically we'd, we'd sort of all make our little programs and put them together for ourselves. And like, I think like once a week they aired our stuff in the student union for like 20 minutes or something. Um, but I'd heard about it and I went along to like the uh, student, um, to like that they had, a, they had a day, like at the beginning of this, of the university uh, year where they were like, right, we're going to elect our heads of departments. And I went along sort of out of curiosity as much as I think I just kind of wanted to meet people and see if it's something I was interested to do. And they were like, oh, do you want to put your name down for head of department? And I was like, I don't know, like, what have you got? And it was like a head of news and like a head of comedy. And then it was a head of sport. And I was like, yeah, sure. Put me down for the head of sport. And then like, there was this like election in this, I don't know, it's like a Roman university. And there were sort of people were coming up and giving these pitches about why they should be the head of news or the head of sport, the head of documentaries, whatever. It's all very like, you know, in that student way, like it makes it sound very grand when it isn't like it's, you know, it's yeah, like, it's really tragic. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's for like 20, like, you know, gawky students in a, in a room together. Um, but anyway, when it got to the sport, like no one else stood up, it was just me. And so I still went up there and was like, I don't know what to say. And so I made all sorts of absolutely impossible promises about like things I was going to do. Oh yeah. We're going to live broadcast, like, you know, the top, university sports teams games to the to the union things that were just technically not within the realms of what we could do anyway so i got that and spent a year doing um sort of uh, uh terrible shows for um warwick university tv but had a lot of fun doing it learned some stuff about how all that stuff works which is really interesting then kind of left it for a while because i finished university and i i had like a really interested the time of working in tv so i came out of university and my sort of first career job is it winding path even to this but my first career job is um is working as a a researcher and runner um for a, a tv documentary company and um on a big word series that um was for bbc called border dash and piffle it was actually a really fun thing to work on and um, had victoria corin um, hosting it who in her sort of peak poker playing days remember there was always like a negotiation of like can we start a filming day at like 10 a.m. and she'd be like, oh, it's a bit early. <laughs> I did that. And um during that was hankering a bit for like something more urgent. Cause we spent like nine months making this TV series, which was fun, but it was it was slow, slow going. I was thinking I could skip a step, and I've realized by skipping a step, I've made this more confusing. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, right, so because I had sort of been interested in doing that TV work, right after university, I took a one-year working visa in Canada because you could i found out from someone at university that like you were entitled to as a british citizen like just have a one-year working visa in canada up to the age of 30 i thought i want to do that that sounds interesting so i'd I'd done that gone and worked in you know nothing too serious i was working in a kitchen most of the time i was over there right before doing that i'd done some work experience in tv and while i was doing work experience in tv i had, had met someone who was uh able to get me a week's work experience at the guardian sports desk so i'd had one week's work experience at the guardian sports desk was it barry no it wasn't barry no um so i got one week's work experience right before um going away on that sort of year well it didn't end up being a year because i got this job off to come back for the bosch and pearful series but six months whatever i was in canada and i um 
had enjoyed it and I stayed in touch basically with the Guardian Sports Desk. So when I came back and I was doing my work for the TV documentary series, I, um, you know, was a researcher runner. They paid you peanuts. It was really hard to live in London and afford to live in London. And I got back in touch with the Guardian Sports Desk and I got, during that time, I did some night shifts. I don't know if Baz will remember this role, but there was like a night uploader and night editor role. And yeah, you'd come in and you would because that was the Guardian was like ahead of everyone in putting all the newspaper content online. The job was literally like newspaper content drops into an online management system. You need to put it on the website and make the the pages look nice. So I did have my sort of foot in the door a bit at the Guardian. To me, it didn't feel at the time like journalism work. Like it felt like it was just like an extra sort of like, um, you know, temping job to make some extra money so I could afford to, to be in London. Yeah, that relationship definitely then helps me because at the end of my time on the TV documentary series, um, I decided I didn't want to go into journalism. I went and did a 20-week NCTJ journalism course at um, Highbury College in Portsmouth. And um, during that time, I got some more work experience at The Guardian because they wanted you to do that as part of the course. And at the end of that course, um, right as we were doing the exams, actually, it was a 2006 World Cup and The Guardian needed more hands on deck in the office during the day. So I went from having done the night shifts before to doing some day shifts on the, on the Guardian online sports desk, which again, as far as knows, was completely separate to the um the 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 newspaper desk at that time. There was the online desk and the new and the newspaper desk. And yeah, it all kind of went from there, like right after the um the World Cup, a, a really a lovely journalist, someone I think was a brilliant journalist, but obviously decided to go and take a different path. Georgie left the Guardian sports desk and there was an open spot. And for a while they had us doing shift work. It was me and a few others. And at a certain point, I got offered a press association traineeship. And I said to the Guardian, I'm going to take this unless you give me a job. And incredibly, they did give me a job. So I said. Which was after, as Peter writes, you did work experience at the Leamington Courier, which included (laughs) a feature about what was on your MP3 player. Do you remember what was on your MP3? Do you remember what an MP3 player is? <laughs> Good question. Uh, all right, that'll do for part one. We'll be back in a tick. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Joseph says, uh, no questions. Just want to say, as an American listener, I've always enjoyed... Nikki's wisdom and gentle humour. I don't know how you are with compliments, Nikki. I, I'm, I, I don't get many, so I find it much easier to, to take the in- insults. I don't know if her personal life will be touched on, but having just recently learned more about her, please pass on my admiration for her courage and grace. Um, uh, Pylon says, I'm pretty sure it's out of bounds, but I'd love to hear about her transition. I kind of feel she might not want to talk about this unless I'm wrong. Um, but I was wondering if everything went well for her, especially in Italy. Look, Look, we talked about this very briefly on the on the pod on the LGBTQ plus special we did a few months ago. Um, and obviously we've talked about it before. You're, you're sort of happy to talk about this and aware that if me or Barry ask something stupid or get our language wrong or whatever, you will instantly pull us up on it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's it's probably like pretty unrealistic to try and have any sort of discussion of my life that, that doesn't bring it in because, I mean, as I already mentioned, I got sent to an all-boys school when I was a kid, which, you know, now feels like something really odd. But, yeah, it's hard not to talk about it. So, um, you know, within reason, I'm open to talking about it. <laughs> so, so like, what age do you feel different? Is that a silly question? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, 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 I don't know if it's a silly question. It's a complicated question because I think, like, um, people in all sorts of things in their like self-understanding um 
arrive at like mature understandings of themselves at different ages. You know, some people have a very sort of clear idea of who they are when they're very little and some people don't. I'm not just talking about gender here, you know, like I've heard people talk about this with reference to to things they wanted to do in their life, to like, you know, their interests, to like the things that become their, that shape their career, to their sexualities as well. Like some people talk about knowing very clearly that they fancy people of certain genders when they're very little and, and some people don't. And and I think all those things are like, yeah, are like things that you can come to at different levels of clarity. And I think like as a kid, I can sort of talk about all sorts of things that um, seemed obvious to me. Like it seemed obvious to me that it would be better if I was a girl, but like it didn't seem like a real thing to like do. Mm. Like it didn't seem like that was an option. And that was just, you know, one of those things that you... Um, that you had were all shaped by like the course of events around us as well. And, you know, I think I was probably wrestling with it much more for a little while as I sort of approached the teenage years. And then something quite big happened in my life, which was that my father passed away. And, and I think like, um, there was a real moment for me of like, you mustn't cause a fuss now. Like, you know, like things are quite hard at the moment and like, now's a good time to like, just get on with everything and i think we mm. probably all did that as a family so i didn't talk too much my rest of my family but i think we all sort of had this sort of mindset for a long time of you know if nobody's dying then everything's all right and um yeah i think it's it's sort of a juncture that who knows if you go back in time how things might have worked out differently but um you sort of go down a different path and then after that it becomes something that you sort of swallow for a long time and and other things happen in life and you um I don't know I I think you can get to a point with certain sort of things and and I don't know if I like the word denial because denial is like sort of implies you're doing something really consciously to me and I think it's it's not always as conscious as that but I think you do sort of um and again I, I think it doesn't this doesn't just refer to gender I think people do this with all sorts of parts of themselves but you sort of tell yourself that something isn't important you tell yourself that yeah, this isn't great, but I can deal with it. This isn't great, but I can deal with it. And some of those things over time just creep up on you and they become more and more a thing that you realize you have to deal with. And yeah, you know, I I think there's there's a, a big part that goes on behind the scenes that that even sort of though this is no longer talking about childhood, this is adulthood and and it's much more recent. I think now when I try and think back clearly about like the process of how you get to where you are today, some of it seems sort of hard to even sort of recall with clarity because there was so much emotion going on. There was so much difficult stuff going on, but I went to therapy for a long time. Like I went to therapy for a long time and I started talking about these things I hadn't talked about. And um, at the beginning of that therapy, I, I still was telling myself that we wouldn't end up where we are today because it seemed like something impossible and and horrible. And like, it was just going to destroy my life and everyone was going to hate me. And that was going to be the end of everything. And um you know, I'm quite glad that has worked out not to be the case. Um, there was some horrible, difficult bits along the way, but um, I, I I feel like I've sort of arrived at the other side of it quite happy. I sort of, over time, does it become more all-consuming? Like, because we were talking about these things, like, oh, I went to Canada for six months, I was working on this documentary, and it's sort of hard enough to do all these things and, you know, working weekend shifts. Was, was this at the front of your mind for all of that? Or is there days where you just don't sort of think about it? I think there's there's plenty of days when you don't think about it because there's of course there's days when you don't think about your gender like you're, you're busy and I think one thing I've always been very good at is keeping myself busy um you know Canada's an interesting chapter again because I I could point to some very clear memories that that happened at the time like you know 
uh, before I went to Canada, I think honestly in my entire life, very possibly I'd met someone without knowing, but I'd never knowingly met a trans person. Um, and so like the only ex exposure I'd had to trans people was in, um, uh, God, I remember reading one newspaper article about a, a guy in England, um, uh, who was sort of, um, a trans guy. And I, um, remember, um, trans women on Jerry Springer. That's, that's where I remember seeing trans people when I was, when I was growing up. And then I went to Canada and I, I, yeah, met some trans people very briefly. Like they still weren't sort of people who I sort of saw regularly. They were just the people who I sort of, whose paths I crossed with briefly. There were moments in that period when it was like, you know, maybe you should try and actually like find those people and talk to them about these things and, and do it. But again, like, you know, some things sort of, um, I don't know, it, it's, it's hard again to explain with clarity what I'm thinking when I'm 20 years old, because I'm not 20 years old anymore. It's a long time ago. But some things just seem so sort of impossible that you just sort of tell yourself that's impossible. And so, you know, you can feel sad about it. And there was lots of sort of times when there was sadness about it or like, you know, um, angst of some kind about it, but you don't necessarily take the next logical step, which is that I can do something about this. And again, I, I do think like I was very good and have always been good at being busy. Like I'm very good at like, oh, I'm going to just go, go to work, do the work I'm going to do. Oh, I'm going to go and keep myself socially busy and go and like have friendships. And I, in some ways, when you talk about doing those two jobs, when I was um, starting out, that's like the prime example of just be busy, like just keep working. And, you know, that's a good thing to do. And work has always been one thing that I think I feel like nobody can tell you off for like if you're doing work then you're providing a good value to the, the world and that's a good thing to be doing so so then that moment where oh man, it's probably not a moment is it where you actually can't you you realize or you decide you can do something about this is that a moment of liberation or is that an incredibly stressful time or both i think it's too simple to call it a moment um yeah. you know i i i had a coming out moment to my um uh, my, my then spouse, I was I was married. I think that's been talked about on the podcast before as well. Um, who's someone who um, is an incredible person who I'm still very lucky to have in my life. Um, but I, uh, you know, that was the first person I ever said anything to about it in the world, and it was not a liberating, fun moment. It was it was a panic attack and a breakdown. Yeah, that was sort of uh, an incredibly difficult moment. That. Um, was sort of a first moment if you want to talk about moments. And then I suppose there's there's moments along the way after that that are different levels of difficult and and um and joyful. Like there is joyfulness that comes, but it's not it's not a moment for me. Like it's there's sort of steps that sort of you get to, but I think especially like probably because of that relationship, which was a great relationship and is, you know, is still a great relationship, just a different kind of relationship. Um I think that sort of unpicking that became its own story but even before that again like it wasn't like I sort of had this moment of like clarity like I'm going to transition I had this moment of I need to talk about this like I can't you know continue forever not talking about something that is in my head so often and uh, you know that's where it starts and so yeah where the sort of moment is I don't know after that like everything sort of feels like it's more of a, a process that unfolds. There was this time where you'd come out privately but you know you were working with us and other people um and you hadn't and that must have been a very strange time yeah it was an incredibly awkward 
uh, time, to be honest. Um, uh, because again, but then, you know, coming out comes in different forms. You know, the coming out to my ex is, I need to talk about this. Uh, coming out to, you know, close friends and family is, at first, that relationship is is breaking down because everyone knows you in your relationships, don't they? And and I need to explain to you why that's happening. You know, that's still not the point of me saying, and I'm I'm transitioning. That's the point of me saying, like, there's some hard stuff I'm going through. And yeah, then there is this this process, as you say, of of actually sort of um, starting to take steps towards what will eventually become you know it's a medical process as well in my in my case it, it isn't for everybody everybody has their own journey and um yeah as you're sort of starting to make those steps there's sort of this growing awareness that you are going to have to go because you do a public facing job you're going to have to go public which um was yeah it was that was a really stressful hard time because you're sort of constantly worried about is someone going to work this out before i say something and also like when is the right time to say something and I, I had some help from someone um, really wonderful who um, actually, again, my ex introduced me to, who um, deals with crisis communications for companies who like talk to me about like how you how you can approach these these things differently. And, and you know, she said to me, like, you know, you can um, there are really like two big options, which is that you either let the information just uh, leak out slowly and and you don't have this sort of big sort of moment of everyone focusing on you and there's some advantages to that and disadvantages to that or you take ownership of it and the advantage of that is you take ownership of it there's no gossip there's no one sort of things and and so there was a decision point about doing that which obviously is when I write my article and, and do a video but like there's there's a build-up period in which yeah you're you're worried about how you're being perceived obviously I was growing my hair out which of course people are going to joke about like of course they are like that's like a normal thing to to do i cringe at me and barry like oh yeah you just joking about you having a sort of midlife crisis or just something i can't remember like you'd come you know on the pod (laughs) and i just think oh you know my toes still curl when i think back to i think you'd move to brighton you're growing your hair long and you were talking about going clubbing and i we it was a running joke that you know your midlife crisis and then when when you made your big announcement <laughs> I just oh Christ I mean it was so much to deal with yeah you know as a standalone thing but then obviously being completely self-centered <laughs> I immediately thought oh Christ <laughs> I'm going to look really bad here <laughs> I, I honestly think like um you know I think the, the majority of people who I work with have been brilliant I think this podcast has been brilliant. I really do. Like, and, and that goes to you as well, Baz. Like, you don't need to feel like guilty about things you said when, like, you know, you didn't know. Like, there's, there's, there's another thing that you should be feel, feel bad about. Um, there's only a very small minority of people within journalism who, at least to my face, um, I'm sure things have been said about me when I haven't been present, um, have been, have been, uh, unpleasant. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I, I get it. Like I have friends, like if your friend suddenly starts acting differently, you're going to say something about it. And if you're a real friend, probably like your natural mode is to joke about it rather than to say something earnest because, well, I mean, you said earlier, Max, I did live in America for two years. They're often a bit more earnest in America, but in England, generally when someone, you know, wants to be sincere with a friend, they they make a joke, don't they? I remember really overthinking like when you were first coming in and sort of like wanting to be sort of over supportive going in I'd obviously like you'd come on the pod I'd just say all right and when he came I was like oh, do I 
no, you know, I should give you a hug. And then I, I just, I just didn't remember going, you sort of saying, oh, we're hugging, are we? And we're going, oh, shit. Maybe I shouldn't have. Oh, fuck. What? I was being awkward, right? Like I was awkward in that moment. I'm instead of interacting with, with all of you guys in a different way in the first time. Uh, so like it, it's awkward for everyone. Like, and, and I'm there sort of feeling very guilty for making people feel awkward. Like I, it's never been a thing I want in my life to make other people feel awkward. I mean, God, that's, that's a whole different topic, frankly, because sometimes, when you read too many newspaper headlines, it's like existing as being trans can be made to feel like it's something that's putting everyone else out, which is, you know, not why anyone transitions. Mm. I, 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 yeah, I think we muddled through pretty well. Honestly, I, I think we muddled through pretty well. How, how do you, I mean, to be fair to Bears, you did that video and his tweet, first tweet was, I thought it was big news. I thought you were joining The Athletic. It was really, really funny. <laughs> yes, yeah. That video, like, it knocked me sideways. I, I had a little heads up I think an hour before it was posted and it completely knocked me sideways. It's probably the most shocking news I've ever heard in my entire life. And I was really worried on your behalf that people will be unpleasant to you or I'm just wondering, has that happened? Like say on trains or just walking down the street or going about your business, whatever. I think there's like a really sort of interesting when you go through the looking glass, which sometimes it feels like I have, um, it, it, you you do get this very odd experience of people treating you differently. And it becomes hard in lots of situations to know when like you're being treated differently because you're being perceived as one thing or another. Like, is this because I'm transgender? Is this because I'm a woman? Like these things are unclear. Like when I talk about in our work, like if someone's posting under a YouTube video, as has happened, or back in the kitchen, whatever, Oh, that's probably mm. just straightforward sexism. Um, if, uh, if, uh, someone is, is lamenting, you know, when did Sky Sports get so woke? Is that because I'm trans or is it because I'm a woman? It could be either because I'm on there with another woman, you know, Mina Riziki and like that could be either, right? Like, you know, that's, that's, um, that stuff is, is blurry. I think, um, you know, probably more earlier in my transition, there was some overt, transphobic stuff that went on like and yes i've been shouted out in the street um and uh i've been uh yeah i've 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 had sort of some some up close personal abuse from people who i've never met in my life which is is not a pleasant thing to happen and yeah then there's also like the other part of it which is things that every woman journalist who covers sport deals with there's there's been situations like even coming back from the 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 euros final going back to my hotel in london there was a, a a guy sort of following me and saying sexual stuff and then, you know, calling me a frigid bitch and all the rest of it. And like me having to sort of scurry by Marylebone to like a random couple I saw walking just so I was walking with someone. Um, yeah, like it, it definitely like it is less safe in society in lots of situations to not be perceived as a man. Like that is that is a thing. Um, and again, like the times when it's about being trans can be horrible and the times when it's about being a woman can be horrible and they're, they're both sort of present and yeah unfortunate side effects i suppose to getting to live in a more authentic way there's probably not an exact answer to this question either i guess but you know and, and this pod is about you and your career and your life it's not about trans rights right whether in sport or anything else i, I wonder is you know do you become more comfortable in your own skin as every year goes by but does it get harder to be a 
is it becoming harder to be trans or or easier to be trans? I mean, the headlines would, you know, would perhaps mean it's harder. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, I think there's sort of, um, in some areas, greater acceptance and in some areas, quite plainly, sort of greater hostility. I mean, right now, we're the political football. Like, I'm sure, you know, well, not I'm sure, like it, clearly migration still is for lots of people as well. But right now, like the number one culture wars topic in this country and in America is trans people. And, um, you know, every British newspaper, including the one that publishes this podcast, has carried some articles that I personally think have been incredibly unhelpful. And I think there's this sort of constant linking of trans people with uh, crimes committed by a sort of tiny minority that is being re-imprinted over and over again as as what people think about when they think about trans people in the same way as after terrorist attacks, the media will just impress on the population that this is a Muslim problem, for instance, as was certainly the case for, for a long time in Britain. Now this is a trans problem. And, you know, most people in the world don't care about it, but enough do that you do get nasty scary people out there who are going to do nasty scary things and 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 attack you for it so it it is a bad time in that regard and you know this this comes to things that i think um a lot of trans people do and you know trans is a a, a big umbrella and and different people experience their lives in different ways but as someone who i suppose has transitioned in quite a binary way there are definitely times when you just sort of hope for your safety that you're not being perceived as trans because it's just easier to just be perceived as not that because of those risks but speaking sort of just personally which is all i can do um i've tried in most things to just get on with it and do what i've always done in my life which is just to be myself and and let people take me as they take me um you do have to weigh that up in some situations against personal safety and as i talked about at the time there's for instance the qatar world cup it was simplified for me because Italy didn't qualify, but could I have gone and been safe? I don't know the answer to that. And and that stuff's pretty grim. Philippa York does punditry on uh, major cycling events. And a couple of weeks ago, I think it might have been during the Giro d'Italia, her co-commentator referred to her successes when she was cycling under the name Robert Miller, a very very successful Scottish cyclist. And I did, I know somebody on, a couple of people on Twitter got very offended on her behalf because he had dead named her, you know, used her Robert Miller name that she used to go by. And she went on Twitter and said, look, I have no problem with this. I was a cyclist. I rode under the name of Robert Miller. Now I'm Philippa York. And this, these people continued to be offended on her behalf. And I just found it really weird their their attitude and and very unhelpful as well i'm not sure what kind of point i'm trying to make here but maybe it's just the toxicity of this ongoing debate but where she had made it clear i have no problem with my co-commentator referring to my successes as robert miller uh and using that name um i've made it clear i have no problem with it and they still say no no he's bang out of order he shouldn't have done that he's offending all trans people I, I think that's that's a complicated dynamic. I, I didn't follow this story, so I, I don't know anything about it. Um, and I think that everyone has the right to sort of ex experience things like their old names as as they do. And if that's how Philippa feels, then I, I would certainly say, well, that's Philippa's um, thing to worry about, not mine. But 
Um, but I also understand that for a lot of trans people, it is something that they prefer not to have talked about. Um, I think it's harder for those of us who were public figures before transitioning because you kind of can't as easily sort of just sort of pretend that wasn't a thing. So you 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 experience that differently. Um, but I I understand everyone's emotion in that, and I do think if there was one thing that I think would benefit this whole discourse, honestly, it would be that tomorrow someone just deleting Twitter from the world because I think it was already a, an unhelpful place in many of these discussions. And I think that since a particularly unhelpful, willfully unhelpful person took charge, it's become an even more unhelpful place for these discussions. Nikki, thanks so much. I mean, it, I don't know if it means a lot, but I just don't honestly, and just see you as someone who's good on the pod, you know, that's it. And like, and that's sort of how it should be, right? I think that's, that's all you, that's all you really want. That's all you really want. Um, it's just to be able to add to well, it's all I wanted. I can't speak for anyone else, but all I wanted was to be able to get on with life and and be myself. And and I think that this podcast has always allowed me that. All right. Well, we'll do more in just a second. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly Life and Time Special with Nikki Bandini. Sam says, I know Nikki is a gooner like myself. Does she have an Italian team? I've always assumed it was Inter. So the real answer now is that that I don't and and I I think like if you spent a season even in my shoes covering the league and 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 experiencing that way you, you do experience this, these things differently and and I think that um really like what you want as a journalist is interesting stories and that's the number one thing um but if you'd asked me when I was I don't know, 15 or 16, because all my cousins sport Inter, I definitely had a spot for Inter. And if you have paid attention to the podcast long enough, you'll know that I even had some cousins uh, not so long ago who were on the books to Inter. So yes, I, I have some connections to Inter that, that are probably a bit different. But, um, you know, the, the best way I can explain it is what I've always sort of said, which is in my dream world for Arsenal winning the league every season, I wouldn't get bored of that. Whereas if Inter won the league, I would be happy for my cousins, but I kind of would be more hoping the next season they didn't win it again because it's more interesting to write about. It's right. more interesting to write yeah, about yeah. if you've got different teams than well, if you've got competition. It, football changes when you work in it, doesn't it? In in every in yeah. every way, I think. Uh, Tony says, why are there such differences between Italian and English football? Do you think these differences will diminish over time as we import, export more players and managers? It It's way too big a question because it, it goes to like, it goes to like how you're brought up, like how you experience football, like everything like in your national culture affects how your football is different, which is why every country has its own sort of football identity and different things. The, the sort of big picture of, of is it different? Yes, it is. I mean, you know, Italian football has got a different mindset that I think comes to, to, to cultural things. And do managers go crossing countries change things? Yes, they, they definitely do, right? Like there's, there's so much sort of cross sort of cultural um learning that goes on at the highest level of football anyway and i think italy in some ways was was ahead of the curve on this anyway because there's a manager school at Covertano where managers are all writing their thesis every time they graduate and 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 you've got this sort of desire to in some ways make it academic um i think there's always been some of that um but i think the countries never completely lose what they are because still the majority of managers the majority of sort of players in the pyramid maybe not in the top divisions uh are still growing up in italy with an italian outlook on on the world you've interviewed some you know pretty big italian stars you know totti buffon etc 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 do you have a most memorable one 
or, or memorable moment covering Italian football? I mean, some of the most memorable moments covering Italian football are honestly this season because uh, a Milan derby in the semi-final of the Champions League is something that you don't, you know, yeah. you don't get to experience. Um, so getting to cover those both for Stan was something really special. Um, interview is without question Gigi Buffon. I've interviewed him a few times, but there was one in particular, um, which my I know it was my second sit down with him. And uh, I was doing it for 8 by 8 magazine and they had a photographer, Roger Neve, who's um, this brilliant um, Dutch photographer who I think does a lot of fashion. I don't think I know he does a lot of fashion shooting as well. And he's got this way of sort of disarming footballers. Like he, he, he manages to sort of get them to lean into the silliness of like these stupid photo shoots that he does. And, and I think he sort of helped me on that occasion to really sort of bring out the playfulness and the, and the fun in Buffon. And we ended up having this sort of huge conversation that went on for a really long time. And I'd come in with, as I always do, I never come with like a fixed list of questions, but I come with like topics I think I'm going to talk about. And I had a big list of topics I wanted to talk about. And instead we got into this like whole conversation about the meaning of life. And I was just like, I don't know, like it was one of those really like cool moments where you're like, I'm sat here with Gigi Buffon, who at a certain point before I was doing this was this sort of mythic figure. And he's talking to me about what he thinks the meaning of life is. And yeah, it was it was a really cool conversation. So um Did you and did you and Gigi Buffon work out I, the meaning of life? Do you know what's awful as I'm saying that I'm thinking I can't remember exactly what he said. So you'll have to go back and double check the uh the interview. <laughs> I mean he he talked he talked about um do you know what? No, I'm, I'm going to say go find it because I'll, I'll butcher it and it won't be as good as he said it. So yeah, go, go and find it. Maybe I'll, I'll see if I can find the link because I'm pretty sure it's online and, and get Joel to post it in the, in the notes. But um, that was that was a really fun interview. Um, um, I've been really lucky to have some really, really fun interviews in my career. and uh, But that's that definitely stands out. I want to touch on the States a bit. I, I mean, our timeline's all over the place, but look, when did you go? And was that sort of NFL-based or, or did your love of NFL come from being over there? No, my NFL enthusiasm is another thing that goes back to to friends in school, like, you know, something that... that's Channel 4 and, and Nick <laughs> Luckhurst and Gary Imlach? No, it was a bit late for that with Sky uh, Sports. Um, Sky Sports. Like, I first got interested in the NFL because we had a family holiday to America where we met some um, family friends of, of my parents and uh, had the game explained to me and was like, oh, this is better than I thought it would be. This is less sort of boring and in inscrutable than I thought it was. And then I came back and talked to someone at school who was like, oh, I love the NFL. And so we sort of developed an interest from there. Um Going to America in 2012 was actually like nothing to do with me. My ex got a Fulbright scholarship to study in the States. And I was like, yeah, go on, let's do it. Why not? Like how many times oh, right. do you get this random excuse to go and live in a different country and Missouri of all places. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really cool experience. I mean, you talk about interviews, but I ended up writing the autobiography of Jimmy Nielsen, who was a, a player for Sporting Kansas City at the time. And that's a series of interviews, but that's probably even even more enjoyable interviews because that was really someone who like when you're doing an autobiography like they want to let you get under their skin and understand everything that was that was a real privilege and a, a fun thing to do owen says is there the same sort of snobbery or stigma around british people covering the nfl as it, there is here when we hear an american covering football i think there's like a shock when like you talk to americans and they're like oh you actually understand but to be honest with you like i mean this is another of those things that like when I talk about the through the looking glass moments, you know, I covered the last uh, Super Bowl for the Guardian, and like I had more than one 
cab driver, like when I was taught, telling that I was there for the Super Bowl, being like, oh, but do you like, do you really like it? Like, do you, are you really into it? Like, do you actually yeah. understand it? I'm like, that's, you know, that's sexism basically. But like, you know, it, 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 it's, it's definitely yeah. like combined with the English accent, I'm sure, like, um, part of it. Um, I actually sort of look back on that and think it was such a sort of odd thing because for a while I was, I was doing a regular column for the NFL's UK office on the St. Louis Rams because at the time they were the London team that came over every year. And I remember like having this conversation with um, the reporters there, like the regular beat reporters, like some, a couple of them in like the, the press room at the Rams training facility. And at the time I hadn't covered a single NFL regular season game, but I covered several Super Bowls. And like I said this, and like all these guys who cover the sport every like week who've never got to cover a Super Bowl are like, Sure. Excuse me, like what? Yeah. So yeah, like it's, it's massive glory. Hunter. Yeah, exactly. Just fly in for the big games. Um, Sebo says uh, favorite city in Italy and why? Non-footballing reasons. Can you get the best pasta there, or is that somewhere else? <laughs> well, the good news is I am going to say the place that I think you get the best pasta, which is Bologna. Um, the reason is that I'm biased because my dad's hometown is like an hour away in in the hills, but so you'd always go through Bologna and and I. I, I get to go there a lot. Um, but I think Bologna is like, I put it right at the top of places I'd tell people who have got like a bit of interest in Italian football to have a city break because you go to Bologna, best best pasta in so the country, nice. in my opinion. Obviously, like the reason we call it spaghetti bolognese in England is actually ragu from Bologna originally. It's something a bit different over there, but it's it's amazing. Um, but they also have capoletti in brodo. There's, there's all sorts and um i really like it as well just to visit because it's it's not too big bologna you can like station yourself quite centrally and just walk everywhere it's really pretty you've got the little towers like all of it is all of it is gorgeous and the football stadium again with a little tower is is i think one of the the sort of understated lovely places to go obviously go to san siro like whatever you do go to san siro while it's still in use but um Renato Dallara is also a lovely stadium to go to. Henrik says, what is Sticky's Desert Island Italian meal? And is it from a specific restaurant or homemade? I mean, I I, I think probably like if I was choosing one meal, it would be, yeah. I was going to say my mum's lasagna, but I can make it too now. So like it's my lasagna. Okay. Like I, I think lasagna like done well is, is really, really good. Um, but it's a desert island. So it's quite hot. Do you want something that's stodgy? Do you want lasagna on yeah. a desert island? You don't really want, you know, because I, yeah. It's, it's, it shouldn't the question be your, your death yeah. row meal rather than your, <laughs> Maybe. your yeah. desert row? Because you're going to get sick of it if you, you're having That's it every true. single okay, you're, day you're, on a desert island. meal is your own lasagna, which means you get to cook. So you like you could really you could slow cook the ragu and sort yeah. of give yourself a bit more time and shank the prison guards with the knife. That's <laughs> definitely tried to escape. <laughs> um, uh, finally, Matt says favorite Italian expression. I think the one that's in my head is. Uh, Non c'è più trippa per gatti, which is like, there's no more tripe for the cats, which is such a weird, like, ridiculous, like, phrase, like, but because <laughs> tripe for the cats, but like, you know, it's sort of, it's, I guess, when you're in a, you're in a more lavish state when there's tripe for the cats and when there's not, um, things have changed. <laughs> um, uh, Nikki, thanks so much for doing this. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. It was great. No problems. Anytime. Thanks, Baz. Thank you. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. This is The Guardian.